Spotlight. I'm Chrissy Wozniak. Today, we have the privilege of sitting down with a true visionary in the field of agricultural engineering, sustainability, and food production. Our guest is not just a professor at Iowa State University. He's a researcher, scientist, engineer, author, and podcast host whose work spans the diverse realms of grains, foods, biofields, uh, biofuels, beverage alcohols, and sustainable agricultural systems. Today, we're going to delve into his remarkable journey, explore the impact of his work in the agricultural landscape, and gain insights into the future of farming and engineering solutions. From Ames, Iowa, I would like to welcome Dr. Kurt Rosentrader. Welcome, Kurt, and thank you so much for joining me today. Chrissy, thank you so much for the invitation. It really is a pleasure for me, too. And as we were preparing for this, uh, we were commenting that it's always great to meet a fellow podcaster. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so let's start off with your background. How did you get to where you are today? So, Chrissy, where would you like me to start? Uh, <laughs> you were born on a... <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago. Um, I was born in Northwest Iowa. A uh, small town, uh, about a thousand people. Uh, it's been about a thousand people through the farm crisis, even up to today. Uh, it sits between the towns of Cherokee and Storm Lake. And each of those towns has had a, a long, interesting journey in terms of uh, meatpacking companies and agricultural economies. And and one town is doing remarkably well over the years, and the other is, is not. And mm. Um, but I grew up on a small, well, at the time we thought it was large. Nowadays it was, you know, thinking back, it's, it's quite small, about a thousand acres of mm -hmm. corn and soybeans. And we did farrow to finish and we also had a beef cattle herd. So my first memory of actual work on the farm, I think I was about seven years old and my grandfather sent my brother and myself out to scoop out the feed bunks because the silage, uh, there were portions of the feed bunks that were not uh, being consumed by the cows, so uh, we had to clean that out. And I got to tell you, that was a horrible job. But, you know, for a seven-year-old, it's a good introduction. <laughs> yep, that's it. <laughs> and then where did your interest, did your interest in agriculture just keep getting stronger through high school and college? Well, you know, I... I wanted to, my, my grand plan in life was to stay at home and farm. Uh, that was what I thought I was going to do. And, uh, you know, when you're a kid, everything on the farm is really cool. Driving the tractor, driving the combine, that was the very best thing to do was to, to drive the combine. And you know that you were you know, reaching a, a certain level of, of maturity and responsibility when they let you drive the combine. Um, so I plan to be a farmer. And when I was in high school, uh, I came to the realization that uh, my uncle was going to inherit the farm, not myself. So I uh, had to figure out a different plan in life. And back in the 1980s, biotechnology was starting to become a, a hot topic. And this was before um, we had really a lot of GMO types of products on the marketplace. and. I remember walking beans and then riding the bean buggy and then saying, oh, my gosh, it would be so much better if we could utilize biotechnology to make our lives easier because I really hated walking beans. And um, that was that was just not a lot of fun. But I do think every kid should do it. 
in their lives. It's a character building experience. So I came to Iowa State and I planned on majoring in ag biotechnology. And the first couple of semesters, I came to the realization that chemistry and biology are actually pretty, pretty hard stuff. And so I kind of lost interest. <laughs> but, um, you know, I kind of wandered around a little bit. I was thinking about different kinds of majors. I was really uh, passionate about FFA in high school. And um, I, I spent quite a lot of time working on different committees at the district and the state level with FFA. And so I was thinking, how could I incorporate that? But somehow I stumbled into ag engineering. And I think it was some of my FFA friends that convinced me to come talk to a few of the professors in the ag engineering department. And uh, it was like a a light bulb turned on. And this is, this is what I wanted to do. And so I started taking the engineering classes and it really was uh, eye-opening. How can you use uh, technology to improve what we do on the farm and then after the farm? And so I decided I was going to to major in ag engineering, and I was really interested in grain, especially uh, grain production and grain processing, and then uh, what happens downstream from that point. And I enjoyed it so much, I decided to stay for graduate school and pursued my master's degree and a PhD, all related to to grain processing and grain mm-hmm. utilization. Um, after I was was finished with my master's degree, when I was working on my PhD, um, an opportunity came up to work for a, a company uh, here located here in Ames, Todd and Sargent Incorporated. So they design and build grain elevators and feed mills and flour mills. And so I jumped at that opportunity and the PhD kind of was a part-time gig for a while until I finished. But uh, I got the chance to design several grain elevators and feed mills and flour mills and mm-hmm. actually um, put into practice what I was learning at college. And I, I, I have to say, I learned a lot at Iowa State, but I learned a lot when I was actually doing the, the work in industry. And um, it was it was just absolutely uh, incredible to to take an idea and then design a facility and see it actually constructed and operational. Okay. And it's... It is just so incredible. Um, After several years, I thought I would try my hand at being a teacher. So I went to Northern Illinois University and opportunity came to be a professor there. And I taught engineering and design for a few years. But uh, as it turned out, uh, one of my teachers that had been at Iowa State had joined the USDA Agricultural Research Service. And he was trying to twist my arm. And if he's listening to this podcast, I'll actually say thank you for this. Uh, The USDA ARS is the in-house research arm of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And uh, an opportunity came up in uh, both their Winmore, Pennsylvania lab outside of Philadelphia, as well as a similar opportunity in Brookings, South Dakota, to work with the biofuels it was working with the biofuels industry, but specifically trying to uh, make uh, the production process uh, more efficient, but also utilize byproducts better. And this was right after, or shortly after 9-11, when the biofuels industry had not really started to grow exponentially. And so it was really amazing to work on helping build an industry 
And most of my work focused on distillers grains, uh, use in beef, dairy, swine, poultry, and, and other things. And it was, it was an incredible experience. But uh, about 10 years ago, uh, some folks at Iowa State called me up and said, hey, we've got an opportunity for you. <laughs> Do you want to come back and be a professor here? So wow. uh, I came back to Iowa State. I've been here a little over 10 years and I teach grain processing and food processing and uh, fermentations and biofuels. And uh, that sort of leads us to today. Yeah, well, that's amazing. And so in your research uh, at Iowa State University, what are you what are you focusing on there? I know that's so diverse. That seems like so many different things. <laughs> Well, that, that's a that's a blessing and a curse, I think, all at the same time, yeah. because there is still so much work to do in terms of the biofuels industry. Mm. And, you know, somebody asked me, gosh, it must have been maybe nine or 10 years ago. Well, you know, you've been working in this area for so long. Surely you've answered all the questions. <laughs> and uh, I had to laugh. And I still uh, I, I still use that quote today because. There are so many things happening in biofuels, and even the corn ethanol industry is still really dynamic. And yeah. what I'm really excited about is the fact that over the last 20 years, uh, here in the United States, we have been able to fully utilize that kernel of corn and not just produce ethanol, uh, but also corn oil that we can extract and use for either livestock feed, biodiesel, or industrial chemical production. But, oh, by the way, we can also separate and use that protein and the fiber for different things, especially if we're talking about uh, monogastric feeds like swine, poultry, but also aquaculture and pet foods. Mm -hmm. And I am just extremely excited about the opportunities that protein separation has for the biofuels industry. And then that's not even talking about this is sustainable aviation fuels or renewable yeah. diesel. I mean, it's such a dynamic and diverse industry in terms of the opportunities in front of us. Yeah, for sure. And so you describe yourself as a multidisciplinary creator. So can you elaborate on that? What does that mean? Oh, that's a really good, that's a tough question, Chrissy. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a really tough question. Um, so I was trained as an engineer. And working at a, the company, I was an engineer. But when I transitioned to the USDA, it, it was different. It was more research and science. And mm -hmm. how do you plan experiments to, to solve a question? And that's what my national program leader actually told me the first time that we met. I would think I was on the job for maybe two weeks and I met my national program leader at the fuel ethanol workshop in Madison, Wisconsin. And he sat me down and said, Kurt, you know what you need to do? And I'm like, I have no idea. What am I supposed to do? I've never worked for USDA before. The ARS is a new thing for me. He said, talk to the people in industry, figure out what the problems are and solve those problems, which That's basically great said, start. said nothing and everything all at the same time. So, you yeah. know, for me, I think over the years, meeting with companies, meeting with livestock producers, meeting with farmers, trying to understand what are the challenges and the problems that they have, whether it's producing corn, feeding cows, uh, doing the ethanol manufacturing process or the protein separation process. What are the problems and how can we, we do research? How can we do work to 
try to make the process more efficient, make it better, make it more sustainable. And so I think that's, I try to incorporate that in my, my teaching aspects too, because, you know, the, the grain industry, while there are a lot of similar things that we see in place that have been there for a hundred years or more, there are a lot of innovative things going on. And uh, whether it's AI systems, robotics, or uh, sensors and control systems that are, are helping preserve the grain on the farm or at the elevator or do the process, uh, whatever the final product is, there are so many problems that need to be addressed. You, you can't be just in a single lane your entire career. And so I think what, what I try to do is, is spread not just my interest, but also how who else do I need to work with? What other areas do I need to consider? And if you remember, I went away from ag biotechnology because I thought it was difficult as a, a first and second year student. Well, the funny thing is industrial fermentation is all biotechnology. And so every day it's all about yeasts and enzymes and microorganisms and how do we make the starch more accessible? How do we break the fiber down? And so you've got to do a lot of different things. You can't sit in the silo and be effective as a, a teacher or a researcher. So, um, but I've also been concerned over the years uh, in terms of people that are working in the grain industry that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of retirements. A lot of people have been passing away over the last several decades that have had a large body of knowledge and, mm -hmm. You know, things related to storage of grain, drying of grain, preservation of grain. And so I've spent some time over the years working on a series of books that uh, really are trying to compile what do we know and what are the next steps in terms of the grain industry, in terms of keeping the grain uh, preserved and functional and able to be processed. So it was some point during the last few years, I think it was during COVID. It was one of those things where, you know, what do you do during COVID? You write a book about grain storage. Yeah. And then, <laughs> so many great yeah. things came out of that. <laughs> I don't know how many people sat down and said, I want to write a grain, a book about grain storage. <laughs> COVID, but yeah, you know, I was one of them. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking quite a lot about, you know, how can we, as an industry continue to to make a difference in the world and you know i know so many people that will go to the grocery store that are so far removed from the production of the ingredients that go into their food how do we tell our story how do we get the message out i know there's a, a set of of people in industry and researchers who have a, a very strong interest in the preservation of grain. And so the knowledge that we produce at Iowa State and other universities will be used to, to build grain elevators and feed mills. But what about the people who are not necessarily directly involved in agriculture? How do we get the message out? And I, I guess that was a, a, a thought uh, that led to the generation of uh, my podcast, which uh, it's not even a year old, but you know, I, I'm really interested in trying to get the message out about about grain. And uh, it's really interesting, too, because when I, I meet with my students at the beginning of every semester, some of them 
come from the farm. Some of them don't. And some of them have experience with grain and a lot of them do not. And so it really just astounds me. You know, we've been, we as a species, we've been cultivating grain for thousands of years. The oldest known record of grain storage is 12,000 years ago in Jordan. Wow. <laughs> we have been and we continue to cultivate grain and use grain for humans and not just food, but our, our other needs as well. So I, I think there's a, a huge opportunity for for all of us working in agriculture to try to get the message out. And, you know, hopefully by the efforts of yourself and, and many others, you know, consumers will start to understand. I, I hate to think about going back a hundred years ago, but you know, a hundred years ago when the majority of people in the US were involved directly in production ag, people knew a lot more about where their food came from. Wow. I think about that a lot. If we've lost so much that even just two generations ago, just my grandmother knew how to make bread. <laughs> right. And and that came from grain. I bet you if you asked a child or asked even a teenager right now, you know, where did your bread come from? They would probably have no idea. And that's another step removed from where I am, where my generation is, where at least we knew our grandma knew. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it's, it feels very vulnerable. What do, what do you think? I think so. I, I think, you know, during COVID, it was so interesting. So many people were trying their own yeast starter cultures at home and making bread at home. And remember the yeast shortage in the grocery store yeah. around the U.S. and then the flour shortage. And, you know, it was really interesting. So many people were trying to sort of go back to our, our roots. Mm -hmm. um, I decided I would jump on that bandwagon, too, and not do the bread machine approach. We we make a lot of bread at our house and we use uh we go through bread machines pretty frequently because we make quite a lot of bread. But uh yeah, it's not so easy to make a yeast starter culture from scratch. No, I guess not. <laughs> <It's> not. <laughs> so how okay, how did they do it? Like how did those people who we see as like the dumb our dumb ancestors, they knew these things. How did they do it? That is such an interesting question. I think um, I think it's a complex, interesting question to ask because, you know, you think about beer, you think about bread, and, you know, those were two staples of human societies for thousands of years. Yeah, for all of recorded history, right? Right from the beginning. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, actually, there's there's an interesting argument am amongst historians and anthropologists uh, over the years, you know, why did the agricultural revolution begin? And is it because people wanted more food or wanted more beer? And I, actually, it's about a 50-50 split, at least wow. amongst the, the, the people that I've talked to and the research that I've done. Uh, but, you know, how clever a person you know, was it just simple observation? Was it experimentation? It had to be a combination of all of the things, especially because people didn't know about microorganisms until the 1800s. Yeah. So, um, hey, even the Last Supper was bread and wine. Absolutely. <laughs> Never really absolutely. thought about that before. Yeah. Fermented and fermented. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the history of grain is entwined with the history of humans. 
Yeah. I, I think so many people have lost that, that concept that food just does not come from the grocery store, but it takes a lot of hard work to actually, whether it's steak or a loaf of bread or whatever it is that you buy at the grocery store, there's a lot of work behind that. It's not just a package. Yeah, for sure. So, so why did you start your podcast? The podcast is the Cereal Grain Cafe. And, uh, and I love that. That's a great title. But so what led you to, to do that? I know you touched on that a little bit before. You know, I, I think it was after the, the latest book that I, I had released, I was thinking about this, this whole idea of people being separated from the farm and separated from agriculture. And who cares about grain? Well, everyone should care about grain because uh, so many people consume grain-based products or products that contain grain-based ingredients, even if they don't realize it. And there are thousands of products that are made with with grain that touch our, our daily life that are not food, that are, you know, whether it's something related to our detergents or clothing, um, there are so many products and it, it, I guess I started the podcast because I was thinking there's nothing else out there that's talking about why people should care about grain. And grain is such an interesting and multifaceted aspect, really nowadays an unknown aspect of our society, unless you are actually actively involved in production agriculture or processing. And so I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to talk to people who are doing research, people who are working in the field that are actually doing hands-on things related to, to grain. And, you know, will this, uh, will it have an interest in, in the, the common consumer? I'm not sure, but uh, it, for me, has provided a great opportunity to meet a lot of people and have deep conversations, which I really do appreciate. And I, I think it motivates me to know that there are so many people who are passionate about agriculture and about grain uh, as much as I am and that are doing so many interesting things. Yeah, that's incredible. And so who who is your your ideal listener that you're targeting? Like for this show, for me it's it's the producer and agribusiness and giving a seat at the table so that everybody in the industry has a voice and can talk about what they're passionate about. And what drives them and what's driving the industry forward. And then for what colors your tractor, that that listener, my ideal listener there is the person that loves tractors and people in marketing, right? To talk about the brands. So who who is your ideal listener? You know, I would really like to have listeners across the spectrum from farm to table. Um, in awesome. reality, at the moment, I think the majority of my listeners are are students. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that's great because what better way to understand the complexities of the grain industry and how that relates to the rest of society. Um, And there are so many different things. And, you know, I've been talking to students, not just here at Iowa state, but I I do work in other countries as well. Um, I'm especially proud of some of the work in sub-Saharan African countries where, you know, similar problems, but completely different scale. And, um, how do you motivate people to to work in the industry? And I think that's for me that's that's really satisfying that so many students are are listening. 
both undergraduate as well as graduate students. But uh, ideally, the listener base would, would be great if we had people from from farm to table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to find every one of us need to find ways to bridge that divide, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, in your experience working in the grain processing industry for over thirty years. What are some really remarkable, significant changes that you've you've witnessed over those years? So, thirty years sounds like a long time. <laughs> that sounds like a long time. Uh, you know, it's it was really interesting. I was working at Todd and Sargent uh, as a design engineer um, before the ethanol boom came. I was working there during nine eleven. I was actually working on designing a freezer facility for one of the IMS pet food processing plants. Wow. And I, I still remember that day. Um, but I remember I went to a, I think it was a corn refiners association meeting uh, conference and the discussion shortly after nine 11 was dry grind ethanol plants. Hey, what's a dry grind ethanol plant? And there were very few of them at the time. And this is going to be the next big thing in the industry. And lo and behold, it was. And it took the U.S. Corn Belt by storm post 9 11. And it was so exciting to be part of a mission to help build an industry. For me, that was the, probably the most exciting part of my career is to, to, have ridden the wave of building all of these ethanol plants and oh what are we going to do with all the ddg and oh where are we going to get all the corn and isn't it great that we can use a domestic supply of our own production to produce our own gasoline and it the research that we were doing uh, not just myself but the team of researchers at usda as well as universities around the country there were so many people working in this space it was probably the most exciting thing I will ever experience because wow. we knew we were making a difference. And, um, cool. you know, post, post that experience, I think there, there are interesting other experiences and trends that, um, that I've witnessed, um, gluten-free grains or ancient grains, you know, it's every year is a different one in terms mm -hmm. of popularity. I remember several years ago when quinoa was the the grain of the year and that was really popular and people started eating quinoa. I don't know if you like quinoa or not, Chrissy, but it's good in salads. That's I don't uh, make it at home, but I'll eat it in a salad at a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, you know, for me I'm not such a fan. But... Yeah. I like grits though. So <laughs> Oh me too. Oh yeah. Me too. Um and this year is the year of the FAO's year of millets. And oh. you know, there's, it's so interesting to see all of the different cereals that are um, grown around the world for different uses, but primarily, especially for human food use. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of opportunities, you know, foxtail millet, for example, I used to spray that with Roundup as a kid. And, right. uh, you know, it's a weed. Well, in mm -hmm. the U.S., it's a weed. In other countries, it's a food source. So, wow. There are some really interesting um, research studies that need to be done for a variety of things. And then there are some of the new things, like the Land Institute is really interested in Kernza. Um, there's, uh, you know, it's a perennial wheat, basically, or wheat grass. 
the yield is really low. Um, so they're trying to improve the, the yield. But uh, apparently the carbon sequestration, because the roots go so deep, apparently it's really fascinating. But mm-hmm. by the way, there's very little work done on this in terms of using it as, as a beer or as a pasta. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And so what excites me uh, in terms of new things, all of these different grains, well, what can we do with them and how do we actually process them into foods that we can eat? And there's so much work to be done. Wow. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And can you share some examples of current projects or, or initiatives that you're involved in that, that have the potential to impact ag and food production, uh, even globally? Yeah, I would say probably uh, in terms of my U.S.-based work, uh, I am still heavily interested in corn ethanol and the processing of corn ethanol. But uh, what's really exciting right now is the whiskey boom around the country. So apparently whiskey is, for the last few years and projected into the future, uh, whiskey is booming and it's growing exponentially. And it's so interesting because the corn ethanol industry was born out of technologies based in the whiskey production industry. Uh, but we've had to adapt and modify and change how we produce alcohol because we're not selling $20 a gallon or $50 a gallon bottles. We are selling you know, a, a commodity that we're lucky if it's a dollar a gallon or so, uh, depending on the year. So we've had to be really efficient. Right. And, you know, from the time the corn enters uh, the dump pit until the time the ethanol leaves on the, the tanker car. And so the whiskey industry is growing in every state because there's been a series of laws that have changed federally that have allowed uh, small whiskey producers to, to start producing. Um, but, hey, what do we do with the byproducts? Oh, we've got a lot of byproducts that are being produced. Oh, we can't put those down the drain anymore and have the city deal with them, like the city of Louisville, for example, because there are too many distilleries downtown. And there are so many places around the country that are trying to adapt technology from the corn ethanol industry into the whiskey production industry Hmm. to increase efficiency, to lower costs, to be more sustainable, to deal with the byproducts. And so I'm really excited about the whiskey industry. And okay, I'm I'm excited about, you know, the tastings, but um, I'm really excited about the opportunity to make the industry better and Hmm. make it more efficient. Um, So that's, that's sort of where I'm focusing a lot of my work uh, the last several years here in the U.S. Um, Overseas, it's a little bit different. So the work I do in Africa is really on the village level, on the small uh, small farmer level, and different questions. I was just in Ghana a few months ago and did a training program for USAID. Uh, it was all related to storage of grain. How do you dry grain? How do you store grain? And when you have losses that are... 20, 30, 40, even more percent on the farm due to insects and mold. Well, a grain dryer or a grain cleaner for a person that farms one acre and they do everything by hand with hoeing and 
harvesting and everything else by hand, it's a completely different question. Wow. Now, yeah. if we had more, if there were more economic opportunities, and I think that we'll see some of that in the coming years in terms of farmers banding together, forming cooperatives, you know, something we did here in the U.S. over 100 years ago because of the same kinds of questions. How can we increase our economic power so we can purchase or we can store uh, grain uh, as a community? We can dry grain as a community. I think we'll see that coming. Um, but at the moment, a lot of the work is how do we store, uh, you know, a few hundred pounds of corn in my my house and I don't want the rats to eat it, the insects to eat it, and how do I prevent it from being moldy? And so you've got to think differently in terms of we got to approach this in a different way. Yeah, I uh, was just uh, had that problem this week. Hurricane Adelia came through. We just got the outer bands here in southwest Florida and uh, my papaya tree fell down. So I have so much papaya. And the same thing, I'm like, what do I, how do I preserve it, right? <laughs> how, how do you preserve it? So I've, I've kind of made like a makeshift cooler that's open, that's in the house in the air conditioning and hoping that it'll, it'll just slowly ripen, but we'll see. But that is a big, a big issue. And another thing you, uh, uh, that you made me think of is there's a Echo Global Farm here in Fort Myers. Have you, are you familiar with them? I'm not terribly no? familiar. Well, next time you come to Florida to visit, you're going to have to go there. I think you would love it. Okay. Echo Global Farm. And what they do is they are a global organization that's always trying to better technology for farmers in third world countries. And whether that's breeding breeding genetics, whether that's making tools. And something interesting, I had her on the show in the spring, and something very interesting that she said, it was something you brought up, was that when you're giving tools to people in those countries, they can't run to the gas station and they can't fix something that's highly mechanical and they have all of these limitations. So how can we make, give them tools that they can use in that place that might be at, not as, as uh, advanced as we have, but something that they can use in their communities? I thought that was really interesting. I, I never would have thought that we'd be thinking that way in the world today. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting. I remember before COVID spending time in Malawi and there were some large concrete grain elevators that were built a few decades ago that had been abandoned and they were, were basically mothballed because they were not effective for the community. And um, yeah, it's not just a matter of let's drop in our technology. You've, you've right. got to have you've got to have it adapted to local needs and local situations yeah yeah that's that's really fascinating there's so much to to think about that we just don't don't spend time thinking about in the world i guess we run out of time thinking but we do. I agree. I agree. <laughs> this is why i don't watch tv very much <laughs> I know, all these things same, to think about same thing for me too yeah, yeah. so how is the concept of wise management of natural resources evolved over the years and what are some innovative approaches that uh, to achieving the goal, this goal in modern agriculture? I know we're, we're it always feels like we're there, but I know we can't be there. <laughs> uh, where do you want to talk? Do you want to talk at the processing plant, at the farm level? What What are you thinking? Yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever comes to your head first, right? Whatever you're most 
One of the things that that comes to my mind in terms of resources mm-hmm. is I, I'm going to start on the farm because um, I, I teach courses at Iowa State related to to agriculture and agricultural themes, and you know we, we always seem to be having the discussion about inputs on the farm and whether it's fertilizers, chemicals, uh, treatments for seeds. Uh, but then also the machinery that we use. Um, I have to say, I remember walking beans and that was a horrible experience. Actually, detasseling corn was the worst experience. Yeah. <laughs> right? uh, everyone should do it, but it's for me the worst job I've ever had. Uh, but, you know, how can we make life easier, more efficient? Um, and how do we utilize what we are using for inputs so whether it's it's fertilizer or the chemical inputs how do we maximize their or optimize their use in the soil or on the plants or in the plants um and i know the the gulf of mexico is and the hypoxic zone is on a lot of people's minds for a lot of reasons and how do we improve water quality in iowa and how much nitrogen and phosphorus are we shipping down the Mississippi River? And I think there's so much work to be done, but in terms of optimizing the use of those inputs, yeah. uh, you know, when you think about inputs, they are a cost to the farmer and the farmer doesn't want to lose money by over-applying things. So I think the discussion about natural resources, we have to talk about how do we better utilize these inputs, whether it's, you know, these synthetic inputs, uh, natural inputs, or human inputs. And, you know, I I think back about and look at statistics. I shouldn't do that. You know, looking at, at historical trends is not always a good thing. You know, you think about how many people are involved in production agriculture today versus 100 years ago. My great-grandparents moved to Iowa from Sweden and set up a small farm first in South Dakota and then in Iowa and um you know look back at pictures of what they did on the farm and it was hard manual labor and then i see a picture of my grandfather on his first tractor and oh it was life changing and we can we see that trend continuing you know how do we optimize the use of humans on the farm when the number of humans are actually decreasing. Right. And I remember in high school, uh, one of the FFA contests was uh, public speaking. And I my speech was rural exodus. Do we have a future? Wow. And, uh, you know, at the time, I guess I didn't realize how this trend has been going on in almost every country for thousands of years. And, you know, we make farming more efficient. We make the production of food more efficient, but then we give opportunities for people to, to do other things. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think that's one of the benefits of the ethanol boom over the years is bolstering rural economies. I look back mm-hmm. on my hometown and surrounding areas, and if it weren't for the ethanol boom, would they still be there and have as strong economies as they currently have? I don't know if they would. So um, in terms of natural resources, I think the the 
the work that's being done by many companies, the work that's being done by many researchers, I think that is helping improve um, the situation on farms across the U.S., but also globally, because these trends are global. They're not just relevant to the U.S. People I talk to in other countries, even in Ghana, um, my my children don't want to be farmers. I don't know what I'm going to do with my farm when when I need to retire. So mm-hmm. it's same Even kinds there. of conversations. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. And we're down to 2% of the population, right? Our farmers. Less, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, if I had the chance, would I be a farmer? Absolutely. I would have stayed. That's what I would have done with my life. But okay, since that wasn't an option, what can I do that's related to farming that can make it better or make it more efficient? And, you know, for the long term, We've we've got to keep moving forward. We we can't sit back and say, "Well, we've done enough. Good luck." We've got to keep trying. Yeah, great point. <laughs> so, um, what advice do you give to your students who are, or students that are listening, if they're interested in pursuing a career in ag engineering or related fields? Oh, it depends on the day. <laughs> it really depends on the day <laughs> um, and what kind of mood I'm in, because. You know, I try to be an optimist mm-hmm. about a lot of things, and it's easy to get uh, to get pulled down by. There's a lot of things in the news that are not necessarily positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if whether you're a student or whether you are a farmer or whether you're a consumer, I think the the opportunities are here if you just take advantage of them, and you don't have to take big steps, uh, small steps. You know, you just got to keep taking small steps. Um, what's the old saying about a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step? Yeah. And, you know, don't be afraid to try things in life. That's what I always tell them. And if you do something and you don't like it, change. You don't have to stay with this company or with this work situation or um, whatever the situation is, change. Um, and I think that's. For me, I've I've tried to to live that philosophy. You know, do your best and just keep taking small steps every day. And you know, eventually you'll look back and say, "Oh my gosh, wow, where have the years gone?" And here are the things that have been accomplished in in those years. Whether it's at a company, whether it's at a federal or a state agency, uh, whether it's on your own farm. I think you know the the worst thing. I think is to just be stagnant and not keep trying to innovate and do new things. So I don't know what, what it's worth, but that's uh, those are my random thoughts for the day. Yeah. I love it. Great points. And you're also an author. So can you tell us about some of the books and publications that you've written? Sure. Um, happy to. Um, so years ago, gosh, it's been more than 10 years ago. Uh, when I was doing a lot of distiller's grain work with USDA, um, you know, there, there really, 20 years ago, there were not a lot of publications or information available about distiller's grains. And this was kind of a problem for farmers, livestock producers, livestock nutritionists. Um, how do we use these things and how do we optimize their use in our beef ration or our dairy ration or, you know, pick a species. Um, And so it dawned on me that, you know, instead of just doing scientific papers, why not write a book about what is the state of knowledge about distiller's grains? So 
um, I'm looking back over the last 10 years and saying to myself, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's changed in the ethanol industry. And some people say distillers grains today are not the same thing as they were 20 years ago. Well, it depends. It really depends. Some companies have changed things significantly and some have not. So Mm. um, the idea was let's make a compendium of knowledge. And I had, um, I had probably 30 authors from around the U.S., different uh, universities and different nutritionists, different scientists and researchers uh, that contributed chapters that talked about anything and everything related to distillers grains from corn on the farm to the conversion process, the separation process, and then how do you optimize the use in the different livestock species. Um, then after my time with USDA, I was at Iowa State, and um, it was actually for my grain processing course. I was looking for a book. My wife thinks I'm crazy, and I don't think she will listen to this podcast, but um, <laughs> she thinks I'm crazy because there was a, a specific book that I wanted to use for my grain processing course called Kent's Technology of Cereals. Um, it was a really great book. Uh, but it was 20-some years old, and the author had passed away. And so I contacted my university bookstore, and I said, is it there any way that we could get used books for the students? And apparently there were not enough copies available at the time. But this book was really interesting because from the corn seed until human consumption and every type of process wow. – um, flour mills, feed mills, uh, beverage, uh, alcohol production, everything in between. So I had my university bookstore do a little bit of detective work for me and got me in touch with the publisher. And so I reached out to the publisher and had several conversations. And oh, by the way, the author's widow was still alive, but she held the copyright. The estate held the copyright. So had some conversations with her and then I flew to London to meet with the family and talk about what would it take to revise this book and make an up-to-date book about grain processing. And so um, they were amenable and it took a couple of years, but um, the fifth edition of the Kent's Technology of Cereals came out in 2017. Wow, that's amazing. Great job. Well, Good tenacity. It, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's it needs to be updated yet again because the industry keeps evolving the technology yeah. we use keeps evolving um and i was thinking with my my grain courses so processing is one aspect but storage is also equally important what happens mm-hmm. either on the farm or in the grain elevator and so my colleagues at the american association of cereal chemistry uh, also, it's now known as the Cereals and Grains Association. I had a set of conversations with them. There was a book that was published about the storage of cereal grains. It came out shortly after World War II. And every once in a while, it would be revised. But it had been 20-some years since that last revision. And so I started the process yet again. What would it take to revise this book that has been a staple in the grain storage industry, especially with companies that design elevators Mm -hmm. and feed mills and university uh, researchers. And so that was the book that I I rewrote during COVID. Um, uh, And there's been so much that's changed, but there's so much that's the same. 
in terms of how we store grain on the farm, how we store grain at uh, elevators and throughout the supply chain. So uh, that's sort of the, the, the gist at the moment. I've got a couple of other projects in the works um, that are not yet published, but uh, hopefully in the next couple of years. Amazing. Very good. And so I have one last question for you. What, what gets you up in the morning? What are you most passionate about for what you do? It's going to sound really corny, by the way. So <laughs> it, it really is. Okay, my family is going to be so embarrassed because of my dad jokes. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I do get up in the morning and I think about something that always fascinates me is cereal grains, whether it's millet or quinoa or corn or amaranth. They're all the same, but they're all different. And what can we do that nobody's done before? that would be really interesting, but also really useful. Because it's it's one thing to do research that's interesting to you as a scientist, but if nobody cares, I mean, it's kind of a waste. So what can be done, what can be learned that would allow us to get some kind of a benefit, um, you know, whether it's a livestock feed or a human food or a, uh, alcohol, what, or, you know, there's so many interesting things going on right now with bioplastics and biochemicals. What can we do with these grains that hasn't been done before? And I know when we talk about the ancient grains, for example, they're a lot more expensive, but it's supply and demand. The supply of these grains is much smaller than than corn. There's a reason we grow corn in the Midwest of the U.S. There's a reason we, we grow corn in every state of the U.S., but the concentration is in the Midwest because we can grow corn really well and we can grow a lot of it. And we can use all of the parts of that corn kernel. Well, that's not the same for the the ancient grains. There are so many untapped opportunities for for these ancient grains that you know it, things are different when you look at corn kernels versus other kernels. And you know some are not easily, you know the the proteins are not easily extractable from mm-hmm. some of these grains. And so what gets me up in the morning is. Hey, what can we learn today? What can we do today that's going to be useful to people, useful to farmers, useful to agriculture that we haven't done before? I love it. That's awesome. Very cool. And so where can people find you? So I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, probably more than I should. I'm on LinkedIn quite a lot. Uh, Just look for Kurt A. Rosentrader. I'm the only one. Um, I do have my website, the Cereal Grain Cafe, um, which is also the name of the podcast. But I would say the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I, I've played around with Twitter a little bit and Instagram, but, you know, I find it, it easier for me to get my message out through LinkedIn because so many people are active on LinkedIn. And I, I know students who might be listening will say, you know, LinkedIn is like Facebook for old people. Well, it kind of is, but that's what companies use. That's what people use at the moment anyway. So um, you can always look for me at uh, the Iowa State webpage or website, uh, iastate.edu. Just search for Kurt Rosentrader. So you'll find my faculty webpage there. But I would say LinkedIn is probably the, the best way to get a hold of me. Chrissy, will you be putting my contact info in the show notes by chance? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Super. Whatever you whatever you need me to or would okay. like. Super. Yep. I'm happy to answer questions. I'm happy to engage in conversations. 
Um, and if there are ideas that people have that are listening, that if you say, hey, this sounds like a really interesting idea, is there any way that you could investigate that in your laboratory? I may be able to, or I may be able to connect you to someone who, who could do Amazing. that. Amazing. So um, there's a lot of work to do. And Chrissy, we're, we need as many people as possible to continue to to move our industry forward. Yes. Yes, that's for sure. Well, thank you so much, Kurt, for joining me. What a great conversation. Thank you, Chrissy. It was a pleasure for me also. Yeah, and thanks to everyone who's watching or listening. If you want to learn more, as Kurt said, all of the links are provided in the show notes. And make sure you go to uh, your favorite podcasting platform and subscribe to the Cereal Grain Cafe. Don't forget to subscribe also to North American Egg Spotlight on YouTube, Rumble, Telegram, or it's also available on Spotify, Apple, Amazon. Listen notes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like this episode, I would love it if you shared it. And have a great day. Did you know that at NorthAmericanAg.com, we are committed to providing valuable resources for farms and agribusiness. Find your next podcast in the Best of Ag podcast library, delve into our on-demand webinar series, check out the latest in ag news, or treat yourself to a new hoodie or tea from our swag shop. Head over to our subscribe page to join our community and be the first to know about what's happening in the industry. North American Ag provides daily ag news and weekly podcasts covering ag tech, ag policy, new products, family, and faith. North American Ag gives farm families and ag professionals insight into what's happening in agriculture throughout North America. Ditch the mainstream media. Join North American Ag. Fastline Auctions, the ultimate destination for online farm equipment auctions. Looking to list equipment? Fastline Auctions knows farmers, and farmers have trusted Fastline for their equipment needs for over 45 years. With unmatched digital reach, and direct-to-farmer catalogs, they can find the right buyer for your equipment. Not to mention, they have the industry's lowest commission rates. And if you're looking for equipment to buy, you can bid with confidence. No buyer premiums, no reserves, just integrity. Fastline Auctions, your trusted platform for hassle-free, cost-effective farm equipment auctions. Visit Fastline.com for more information. You can join us for a tour of the Fastline Auctions platform July 13th at 6.30 p.m., to register for this webinar, go to NorthAmericanAg.com slash Fastline hyphen webinar. That's NorthAmericanAg.com slash Fastline hyphen webinar to register now.